0: This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, in episode 7, we take a pause from our normal format to get a pulse markets update from Dr. Anton Beckerman at Montana State University. Then we talk about rhizobia, the nitrogen fixing bacteria that are a big reason people grow pulse crops in the first place, with Dr. Audrey Kalisle of North Dakota State University. If you're new to pulse crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. The show follows some of the Pulse Crop farmers through the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of industry stakeholders along the way. Normally, we would check in with a Pulse Crop farmer at this point in the episode. But with everything 2020 has had going on globally, I thought it might be helpful for this episode to instead talk about markets. This will be a high-level economic look at how COVID-19 might impact pulse demand domestically and internationally, as well as some general resources to find good information out about pulse markets. To answer these questions and more, I speak with Dr. Anton Beckerman, who has been at Montana State University for the past decade or so. He's the Associate Director of the Montana Agricultural Experiment Station and an Associate Professor of Economics at MSU. He starts by setting the scene of how COVID-19 may impact pulse prices long-term.
1: One of the things that we saw kind of at the, the beginning of the shelter-in-place orders is consumers going out and buying a lot of storable goods. And there was a huge increase in the purchases of food items in particular. Those storable goods, such as pasta and canned beans and even meats that you can freeze, they were quickly taken off the shelves by consumers and there were deficits in the markets. And I think if, if you know, knock on wood, we don't, but if we have a second wave and if we have additional shelter in place situations, I think we're going to see similar types of consumer patterns. And what makes peas, lentils, chickpeas, other beans particularly special is that they represent an alternative, storable, relatively cheap source of protein. And I think as consumers realize that maybe they can't, either find enough meat products, meat protein products, or because of the shortages in supply, the prices of those products go up. If this pandemic and and the impacts, the economic impacts of this pandemic continue for a relatively, you know, medium to long term, I'd say 12 to 18 to 24 months, I think consumers will likely look more to alternative sources of protein, such as Peas, lentils, chickpeas. And if, again, knock on wood, this doesn't happen, but if we have a really long impact of the pandemic, again, the fact that peas, lentils, chickpeas, post crops are cheaper alternatives, and we have millions of people who are either out of work or are maybe saving more because they're not sure about their employment certainty, they may decide to switch to buying more of those products. And in a longer run scenario, that may lead to more permanent changes in behavior. So if I have eaten chickpeas and and peas and lentils for the past year and really reduced my consumption of beef, it is likely that some of those behaviors will stick around after the economic recession ends. And I may actually start just buying peas and lentils because I have learned to like them, uh, where before the pandemic, maybe I didn't think of them as much. If we get a vaccine in the next you know, five to six months and beef, which is a luxury good, uh, starts being consumed at pre-pandemic levels, certainly the potential for pulses to become um, more consumed domestically may not be there if if we have a very
0: quick return to sort of quote unquote normalcy. So that's a really good perspective on the North American consumer. But what about the global outlook? What can we expect from export markets going forward? Yeah, so
1: I I looked at some uh, export data uh, yesterday as I was kind of preparing for this podcast. And we've certainly seen a tremendous drop off relative to kind of the golden years of 2015, 2016. Certainly India, after it instituted their tariffs in late 2017, has not been nearly importing our crops to the levels that they used to. There was some optimism back in late February, early March, when President Trump went to India and interacted with Prime Minister Modi, Narendra Modi. And there was some optimism that perhaps the two countries can reconcile and have India remove some of the high tariffs that are currently and still in place. on on post-crop imports, but that really didn't lead to much. And and now that we have this public health emergency, I I think those negotiations are kind of off the table for now. We've seen a bit of an uptick in sort of looking year to year relative to last year at this time of the year. We've seen an uptick in exports to Canada, an uptick in exports to Mexico, and some increases in exports to East Asian countries. But I think the fact that there is uh, continued uncertainty, not only with the public health emergency, but also with the policies, the trade policies, right? We've instituted the new NAFTA, USMCA. But as soon as all three legislatures, the three countries agreed on it, we had this public health emergency and the borders closed, except for essential services, right? And that really puts a damper on, how much businesses can interact in those three countries and establish trade deals same thing with China there have been continued geopolitical discussions and um, tiffs I guess because of that uncertainty in how those countries are going to interact with each other those businesses are not as likely to engage in buying products to the extent that they could have if we had you know no pandemic and and a upward trajectory and sort of the geopolitical behaviors and perspectives of of different countries. So um, in terms of trade, there's a little bit of optimism, but certainly not much. I I think we're going to be in the status quo for the next year.
0: Something Dr. Beckerman is really interested in and also should be of interest to many pulse growers out there is the question of how closely do pulse markets follow the markets of other crops a farmer might also grow?
1: One of the really interesting things that, that we've been seeing in the past several months is the fact that certain crops like corn and soybeans that go primarily not into human consumption directly. They either go into animal feed or biofuels production. Those markets just drop precipitously, you know, 15-20% drop, where crops that go into human consumption, like the barley, like the wheat, like the pulse crops, they seem to kind of maintain at least the same level, maybe, you know, a 5% to 7% drop from where we were before January. So I'm really interested in understanding how those crops are related. And we have traditionally seen that all crops move together. But this is a really interesting kind of case study of looking at how shocks to the consumer side of the market can impact different crops and different markets and and prices in those markets. I'm interested to learn whether this is a permanent or predictable response to uh, recessions or uh, these kind of situations where consumers are restricted from buying goods or things that affect consumers first rather than producers, which we typically think of market shocks being like a drought or a flood or something like that. And, and I think the, the, interesting, uh, the interesting question to me, at least, is whether there is a difference and whether that difference is predictable. So I, I think this particular situation is presenting this really interesting case study and kind of experiment To see what happens to markets and and how do markets react relative to the more traditional shocks that we think about.
0: Now, this is all very interesting, but how does it relate to the farmer? Dr. Beckerman has been working on better understanding planting decisions at the farm level.
1: You know, before before the national emergency and before a lot of the shelter-in-place situations and, and a lot of changes in consumer markets, the USDA did a prospective planting report and and they found that you know lentils in Montana were going to go up by 7% in terms of plantings peas were going to go down by 7% which is just about right right farmers are replacing a post crop with another post crop and they're looking at you know the, the marginal differences chickpeas were going to be down 30% but that's not surprising because chickpea prices are just awful right now and they've stayed that way but but that happened before we had a lot of the consumer changes and a lot of the changes to Wheat, especially spring wheat prices, and what we've seen is that relative to spring wheat prices, actually, pulse prices have stayed relatively stable while spring wheat prices have gone down because a lot of farmers are, especially in Canada, have thought about adding spring wheat because they're counting on that market to be more stable in the next year than maybe some of some of the other markets. And so, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to see whether some of the USDA numbers are going to change once we see what producers actually did. And I would bet that we'll probably see some increases in those pulse acreage. In terms of marketing in, in the harvest season, that's really hard to really think about because if anyone can tell me how we're going to deal with the pandemic over the next two months and what the pandemic is going to have on markets over the past two months well, they, they will be a genius because I don't think anyone knows. So I think what farmers are counting on, at least from my conversations with, with a few of them, is that, look, we're just going to do what we've done in the past and kind of hope that markets don't change too much. And I think there is some positive uh, news in that you know economies at the state level are opening up. People are feeling a little bit more confident. And I think there is... Some confidence growth in those processors and and final grocery stores, et cetera, that things are going to get back to normal, quote unquote normal, the new normal, in the next several months. and And I think markets are picking up on that, and the prices are slightly inching up, especially for those products that go into human consumption. But this is probably one of the toughest years in my memory to make a marketing decision three, four months out, and especially hard for crops like pulses because there's no futures markets. So there's no indication of what investors and processing facilities are thinking about conditions three to four months from now.
0: One challenge with pulses is the lack of up-to-date market information. Not having a futures market can mean less transparency. I asked Dr. Beckerman where a farmer might go for more information to keep up-to-date about pulse markets.
1: The way that I look at it is the USDA Agricultural Marketing Service has prices. Peas and lentil prices they provide for kind of the, the northeast Montana, northwest North Dakota area. Uh, chickpea prices, they only provide for Idaho. And I typically go to those, those are spot prices. So they're not forward looking. But typically, we think that markets are efficient. And those spot prices are going to be at least somewhat reflective of the outlook for, you know, at least 30 to 45 days. I think that in, in my mind, because of where pulses are grown primarily in Canada and kind of the northern part of the US. The other thing that I look at a lot is um, uh, Canada AG statistics. They provide because pulses are so much more part of their production system Canadian basically the the equivalent of the Canadian USDA, they provide monthly, Perspective reports on what's happening in post markets in Canada. And those are a fantastic tool for me to say, okay, well, if this is happening in Canada, there's a very high likelihood that we're going to see a pretty direct impact and very close correlation to what might be happening in the United States in those markets. So, for example, Canada is predicting like a 14% reduction in the stocks. For the inventory for lentils this year. So that to me is indicative of likely a growth of demand for lentils, and it's likely going to be even more if we continue this, the restrictions due to the pandemic. So I can I can certainly see a growth in demand for lentils this year, where peas, Canadians are predicting a 6 to 10% increase in the inventories at the end of this year, which to me is indicative of. A softer demand in pea markets. So if I were to make a bet right now, I would say lentils are probably going to be the crop to market in September, October, where peas might be either worth storing until those prices recover, or worth selling off as soon as the price that you can get hits your break even, or at least, you know, some profit. Just a a quick summary, USDA Ag Marketing Service, great for spot prices. Canadian prospective reports are really good for understanding what might be happening in, in a few months.
0: He also added that watching currency exchange rates is very important. As the world rushes to the U.S. dollar as a safe haven, the relative strength increases, making our pulses more expensive on the global market. We turn our attention now to another asset of growing pulse crops, nitrogen-fixing bacteria called rhizobia. Willing to provide some fascinating information on this topic is Dr. Audrey Kalisle, a plant pathologist at the North Dakota State University Williston Research Extension Center. Dr. Kalisle oversees the plant pathology research program for peas, lentils, chickpeas, and durum wheat. We know that pulses attract these nitrogen-fixing bacteria, but can we influence how much nitrogen they fix. How do we measure this? And how do things like disease management impact overall nitrogen fixation? To start tackling these questions, one of the biggest decisions a farmer will make is what type of inoculant to use.
2: It's fairly well established that you get the highest level of nodulation with a granular inoculant. So that's been published in several cases and that's pretty well understood. So the granular inoculant, to describe it, is like little granules of peat, essentially, and the rhizobia are in the. They look like tiny little dirt balls, <laughs> and that goes down with the seed, like you know, like a starter fertilizer would. So it's placed with the seed. Now you can get a, a dried peat, so that's instead of a little granule, it's just a powder, and that goes on the seed in a slurry, and so that's in direct contact with the seed. You apply it before seeding. A liquid. It can just be a, a liquid culture of Rhizobium. Typically, there are some other things mixed in there, but it's the bacteria itself applied on the seed. And so there are three different formats. And as I said, we observe the best nodulation with with granular teaches kind of second, and then and we observe less nodulation with within liquid inoculum. But a, a farmer is making a the decision there based on cost as well, because the granular inoculum is the most expensive, and so many folks prefer the liquid because it is the least expensive. However, if you're seeding a pulse crop for the first time on ground that's never seen, well, in the case of chickpeas, if you're planting chickpeas for the first time, then I would certainly invest in a granular inoculum if you want to optimize your nodulation. And in the case of peas or lentils, that's the same rhizobium that nodulates both of those crops. So if you've had peas before in your rotation, you haven't grown lentils, putting lentils on that ground, there should be some rhizobia in the soil. And so you probably won't end up with no nodulation at all. But depending on the length of time, you might still want to invest in, in the granular inoculum. And keep in mind, you should not be growing these crops, obviously one after the other, but even just leaving one year in between, the rotation should be longer than that. And so, as you go on, those populations of rhizobia in the soil are going to be
0: decreasing. Something interesting about these inoculant products is that they're sold over a really large geographic area. In some cases, nationally, uh, which of course spans various soil types, climates, and different native flora in the soil. So. Are they equally effective everywhere, despite whatever environment they're being applied to? And will they remain in that soil over multiple years? Well, Audrey's done some work to try to start answering some of these questions.
2: I looked at chickpea fields in 2018 in Northwest North Dakota. And my collaborator and I, uh, Matthew Crook, he's from Weber University. He's a, a specialist in genetics, rhizobial genetics. I took soil samples from these fields where they had either been planted to chickpea or were going to be planted to chickpea, and that was the spring of 2018, and I put these soils into pots and, you know, did everything under sterile conditions, uh, grew chickpeas into pots, and um, essentially half of the soils that had never seen chickpeas before, the growers reported they'd never grown chickpeas before, there were rhizobia in the soil that were nodulating the chickpeas so i was able to obtain nodules however when we you know went back and we sampled plants from farmer fields so we dug up plants and isolated bacteria from the nodules of the field grown chickpeas you know versus our lab grown chickpeas 20 out of the 23 of the of the nodules and each nodule was a different field was from the inoculant isolate so we can com- we compared that using multiple Genes to uh, inoculant isolate strains, and, and only three nodules had non inoculant strains present. So, even though there are rhizobia present in the soils, it appears that at least a very closely related strain is the one that's predominant in the nodules. So, that's an interesting question to me. And then, in the case of those three non inoculant isolates, are those ones going to be really competitive strains that could be? Mind for future use in an inoculant product.
0: As a plant pathologist, much of Audrey's work deals with trying to eliminate certain biological organisms in the soil. So I wondered if disease management of soil pathogens can actually end up having harmful effects on these beneficial bacteria.
2: I think the main thing that people would think about would be seed treatment for the root rots and if that interferes with nodulation. And I would say it could. I have some of my own work on chickpeas where one chemistry appeared to reduce nodulation by about half. And that was where I applied the chemistry. It was allowed to dry on the seed overnight. And then a liquid formulation of the rhizobial inoculant was applied to the seed and then immediately planted. And so in terms of the timing of things that would be considered ideal. You know, you apply the inoculum and immediately seed. What you don't want is like a liquid inoculum sitting on the seed, particularly if it's treated. And I I would say it just, it would probably have to do with the the chemistries and the formulations. So some formulations of seed treatments have been specifically formulated to be more rhizobial safe. And so I, I would say, yes, it's possible Whether you you notice a problem would depend. And I would think your risk would be less in the case of a a rhizobia inoculant that's applied as a granular rather than directly on the seed.
0: So how can we measure the effectiveness of an inoculant and just overall performance when it comes to attracting rhizobia? Is it as simple as just counting the nodules?
2: I think it'd be the most straightforward measurement is something anyone could do. It's just dig up the plants, wash the roots and and count the number of nodules. People also uh, measure dry weight because uh, nodules can differ in size and the size can be related to how much nitrogen is getting fixed. A very small nodule, um, in particular, a nodule that is white uh, is is likely to be non-fixing. You know, a large nodule that is pink, pink being the color of the hemoglobin. So that pink coloration is really an indication of nitrogen fixation. So a large pink nodule is going to be fixing more nitrogen than a small white nodule. So nodule number alone isn't going to necessarily communicate to you all uh, you would need to know about the health of the symbiosis. But generally speaking, when when we're counting nodules on plants and we're seeing a, a high number of nodules, most of the nodules that we're seeing are those healthy ones.
0: Important to note, though, however, that measuring nodules is not the same thing as measuring nitrogen fixation itself.
2: No, measuring nitrogen fixation is is very complicated. <laughs> there's there's multiple methods you, you could use. Probably one of the most straightforward ways to do it under controlled conditions is where you have no additional nitrogen applied. And your growth media is like perlite or something that doesn't have any nitrogen in it. And then you you, know, you don't inoculate a plant. So there are absolutely no nodules on that plant versus a plant with, with nodules. Nodules from, you know, say X number to X number. And then comparing the amount of nitrogen in the tissue or comparing the biomass of the plants. So if the, the plant is completely deprived of nitrogen where you don't inoculate, you can compare that to situations where you have the symbiosis taking place. So that would be like the most basic way to measure it. But there are more, more complicated ways to measure fixation, including fertilizing with N15 and measuring the amount of N15 in a legume versus a reference plant that does not fix nitrogen like wheat. And basically measuring the amount of that N15 gives you an idea of, of how much fixation is taking place versus uptake of nitrogen from the soil, which you have fertilized with this kind of marker nitrogen.
0: Okay, I need to take just a time out at this point in the show to address a basic question that I've never bothered to ask. So at the risk of sounding dumb here, when we see a nodule, what exactly are we looking at? I mean, I know it's the physical manifestation of these beneficial bacteria being there, but why does it show up that way?
2: So the nodule is a plant structure. It's made up of plant tissue. Inside are the bacteria. So when you're looking at the nodule, the outside tissue, it's all plant. And then inside the bacteria are all encapsulated in plant cells, and they fix nitrogen inside of plant cells. So the the bacteria are still kind of kept separate from the plant. So the benefit to the rhizobia, right, is that it's protected, it's fed, it's essentially cultured by this plant, right? And then as I said, said before, the nitrogen fixation reaction is sensitive to oxygen. And so the plant produces that hemoglobin, which will protect the reaction from the oxygen. The oxygen can also be a a way to sanction the bacteria if they're not needed or if they're cheating, because there are some cheater rhizobia that can enter the plant and get nodule and everything and then not fix as much nitrogen as another strain.
0: Cheater rhizobia is just one more example of how complex the rhizosphere is. Fascinating stuff. Now, when a farmer wants to evaluate their nodulation, when do they go check for it?
2: Um, if you want to look at nodulation, I would say shoot for three to four weeks, where you get the the, mo- the most uh, nodulation and nitrogen fixation. Will vary based on crop. I believe some data from lentils showed that you're getting. Uh, high levels of nodulation around flowering and early and late flowering is where that's going to peak.
0: Ultimately a top priority for farmers, how does all of this improve in yields? And in turn the bottom line. Audrey says though, when evaluating rhizobia keep in mind other factors that will also offer longer term benefits.
2: Something I get I get really concerned about is using yield As a measurement of the success of an inoculant or on the success of the symbiosis. So, a big benefit is that the pulses are adding nitrogen to your system. They're also building your soil. You might not reflect that in the yield. The plant is trading off carbon resources in return for the nitrogen. So, it might give up to half of its carbon resources, you know, the, the sugar it's collecting through photosynthesis might give half of that to the rhizobium. And that's how the rhizobium gets its energy to fix the nitrogen. It's a very energy intensive reaction. If you've got a really active symbiosis fixing a lot of nitrogen, that might be decreasing carbon that's availability available for yield, right? So the benefit you're getting is kind of hidden. And maybe you'll see that in in the soil building because, you know, is that the plants are, are fixing, you know, sugar, some of that sugars goes down into the roots and produces an exudate and builds your soil. You're adding nitrogen to your soil, you know, the more nodules that you have and, and the more rhizobia you're going to have in your soil. So I would be careful when folks say they're not seeing the yield benefit to inoculation, because that might not be the best way to understand whether you're you're achieving what you want to achieve.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Audrey Kalisle and also Dr. Anton Beckerman for being on the show. I think both topics of markets and rhizobia are fascinating and relevant to growing pulse crops today. We have a lot more great information coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season. Please subscribe and tell a friend who's also interested in pulses. You can find all of the episodes over at www.growingpulsecrops.com. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you your next episode very soon.